0: A little introduction to mark today uh, really the introduction to the book will be tomorrow today hold on let me pray first let's pray for us and then we'll, we'll get into our study uh, thank you Lord uh, for this morning and thank you for our church thank you for the preaching of your word especially this morning and I was reminded how the heavens declare your glory, and the skies proclaim the work of your hands, and we're blessed with such a beautiful day today that you've given us. We thank you, and we pray this next hour that you would bless our fellowship together and bless our fellowship around your word, and blessings in these next weeks and months our study of the Gospel of Mark, and we pray you'd use it in our lives to help us to become better servants of Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. So. Yes, I decided to teach through Mark, and a few reasons I wanted to do it, and I've alluded to them over the last few weeks, but really it does seem like it's a gospel that is neglected. Like often when you hear people quote the gospel, they're quoting from Matthew and Luke and John, and it seems like Mark is just often not referenced as much, and you don't hear much about the gospel. So I was personally interested in going ahead and studying it, and I thought, the class would also benefit from this study, too. We've encountered Mark a little bit when we we're going through 2 Timothy. You remember Paul, at the end of his life, said to Timothy in those last few verses of that book, you know, get Mark and bring him here. He's useful to me. And that was interesting because we remembered Mark early on in Acts, in the um, Paul's first missionary journey. They took Mark along with them. And Mark sort of, Petered out a little bit. He, for some reason, he didn't complete that journey. And then the second journey, Barnabas said, "Let's take Mark with us." And Paul said, "No way. I'm not going to take Mark with us." So that's those are the bookends of what we hear about Mark in the New Testament. So today, what I would like to do is go through and um, look at Mark and look at his personality and and really get in our minds who he was and what he was all about, what we know about him in the gospel. We'll also talk a little bit about what's known about Mark from the other historical writings that were present in the the early church. Before we go there, though, just a a brief mention, and next week we'll go through this in a lot more detail. As you know, Mark's gospel is the shortest gospel. It's about two-thirds the length of Luke. It is characterized, as, as you know, as a very rapid pace when you read it. It's just, it's just so fast and so active, and you can read the whole thing really quickly. And Mark, the way he writes, sort of forces us to, to just move along. It's a gospel that's packed with action. And I'd like just to impress on us that fact. Look at the first couple of verses of the other gospels. Because Mark doesn't really tell us the purpose of why he's writing the book. So we glean the purpose from the content of the book. So if you just briefly, this will just take a minute. You don't even really have to flip through there. But look at Matthew's first couple verses. And it's pretty clear where he's coming from. The record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, and on he goes For 18 verses, the genealogy of Jesus. So we know Matthew's coming from the angle of he's going to be teaching people who know Jewish history. This is going to be important to them. Flip over to Luke, because we'll do Mark last. And Luke starts out saying, right? Remember he says, um, uh, it's pretty clear why he's writing it. And as much as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order. So Luke's motivation here is really, uh, he's like a scientist. He's like, I'm gonna, I've collected all this information, I'm going to be as accurate as I can, and I'm going to write out the uh, story of Jesus. And then John is really different. in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God so he takes a real backs up a lot you know even before the world began Jesus was here and he was the word so and he tells us actually the purpose of his writing at the end of his book he says these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the son of God and that believing you'll have life in his name so that's at the end of chapter 20 where he says that so You sort of see early on and explicitly in the other Gospels the purposes of why they wrote it, but you don't really see that in Mark. When you look at his first verse, he says simply, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Very simple, very straightforward. He's telling this is the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ and he calls him the Son of God with a unique personality of God's son so we will see as we read through it the purpose of why he wrote it and the general theme just briefly is that Mark portrays Jesus as a very active servant to people he's active he's performing miracles he's teaching he's moving around he doesn't even have time to eat a lot of times he doesn't have time. The crowds are pushing him out. He's got to move away. So you see Jesus is a very, very active servant of the Lord. He's really a suffering servant in this gospel. And while we're there, let me just read some things that Jesus does in Mark's gospel. Okay. or what I would say what Mark writes about Jesus in his gospel. Okay. He starts out quoting scripture, Old Testament. By the way, in that first chapter of Mark, that's the the only Old Testament quotes you'll see in his gospel. He quotes that. We read about John the Baptist. Jesus is baptized. A voice from heaven comes down. Jesus is 40 days in the wilderness. John is taken into custody. Jesus calls Peter, Andrew, James, and John. Jesus teaches in Capernaum. He teaches in the synagogue. He calls out an evil spirit. He heals Peter's mother-in-law. He heals the crowds. He casts out demons. He's overrun by the crowds. Jesus preaches throughout Galilee. He casts out more demons. He heals a leper. And then he's overwhelmed by crowds some more. All of that is in the first chapter of Mark. All those things are in Mark's first chapter. So I'm just impressing on you how action-packed this gospel is. There's no nativity scene, in, there's no nativity account in this gospel. Come on up, guys, we've got to make a couple seats here, maybe, yeah, come on in, welcome. So, I, so we, that's a brief, brief, brief overview, we're going to revisit this next week, but you, you just get the sense of how Mark is a much different gospel than the other gospels, and the, the style and the pace. He also will te- show us a lot of vivid details, which is interesting because we'll get into this in a few minutes. Mark was probably not an eyewitness of these events. He was not one of the apostles mentioned in the gospel. Mark's name isn't mentioned in any of the gospels. Matthew, Mark, or Luke, or John, his name's not mentioned. So if he was around, he would have been very peripheral. So nevertheless, he... he. Um, does have a really vivid description of a lot of events of Jesus' life. And unlike the other Gospels, or maybe more so than the other Gospels, he uh, tells us a lot of Jesus's emotions. Sometimes Jesus was angry. Sometimes he was like frustrated, if that was the right phrase to use. I don't remember exactly what it's used, but with, this, with the apostles, he shows his, his you know, Impatience, actually, that's one of the words that he uses, but it's not a sinful impatience, obviously. But the point is Mark describes a lot of Jesus' emotions more than any of the other Gospels. He also has a, I guess I would say, a less flattering view of the apostles. He really paints them as pretty dull. And you read even toward the end of the Gospel, they're asking some simple questions that you're like, You've seen him feed 5,000, then you saw him feed 4,000, and they're still, you know, worrying about eating food. So he really paints the apostles as, as human and, and pretty dull. And the last thing I'll just mention, when you read through Mark's gospel, if you were to read through it this week, you'd see that his, he's almost blunt, actually, with some of the phraseology he uses and the way he, his speech is direct, it's real simple, it's straightforward, and sometimes it's, it's almost even blunt. So, we will see all that in the next few weeks and months as we, we go through the book. But the bottom line, I'll just reiterate, what you do see mostly is Jesus is the miracle worker. He's very busy. He's a son of God. He's a suffering servant. Okay. What I'd like to do now is just... Oh, by the way, one last thing, and we'll, we'll talk about this next week. I have to touch on it because... It's interesting to me, and I think it does inform us. You know, there's controversy about which gospel was written first, Matthew or Mark or Luke or John. And the contemporary idea is mostly that which one was first? Mark, right, that Mark was written first. And the other two synoptic gospels, Matthew and Luke, sort of used it as, as a template to write their Gospels. And then Matthew sort of amplified his Gospel to accommodate his audience. And Luke did a little more research. And, but the point is, they, they, the modern thinking for the most part is Mark was written first. Uh, I don't think so at all based on the research I've done. And there's a whole other school of thought which is consistent with what the entire church thought up until about the last 150 years. Clearly, Matthew was written first. Okay, So I'm going to spend some time next week because it's interesting and uh, going through the history of the Gospels and when we think they were written and what the early church fathers said and then touch on why it seems like that sort of got derailed to um, use this form of historical criticism, they call it, to uh, um, claim that, that Mark might have been written first. So we'll do that next week. Andre, I guess if we can get some chairs. There's one up front here. If there's a single.
1: Well, I disturb you. Uh, that's for nice, uh. my. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm.
0: Thank you. Okay. Oh, here we go. Welcome. The more the merrier. Come on in. so so, for today, we'll spend time talking about Mark, and next week address some of these other issues and even next week, we will talk about well, who actually wrote the gospel of mark who 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 marked some of the uh, historical evidence of his writing so like the other Gospels, Mark doesn't say in his Gospel that he wrote it. Okay? The title is The Gospel According to Mark and that has been the title of this book almost forever. It's in the earliest, earliest manuscripts we can find and the earliest um, really unanimous assessment of the early church fathers. When you look at their writings, they basically all agree this Gospel here was written by Mark. Um, so let's look at what the Bible says about Mark. I want to start there. In the first place we see him, and if you, you're going to like keep your finger in Mark, but also flip over to Acts, because we're going to flip through several different chapters in Acts, starting in chapter 12. Let me get there. And I'm just, for your help and mine too, I'm going to put up basic dates, approximate dates of when these things happened. Sometimes I read through Acts, and I just get in my mind the idea that this all sort of happened within a couple of years, right? Not so. I mean, we're talking 15 or 20 years, the course of Acts, right? Paul wrote 2 Timothy probably around the year 60. 64, 65, somewhere in that range. And Acts probably the first account of Acts at Pentecost or Jesus' resurrection is going to be the year what? 34. So you're talking 30 years, that Acts covers. So anyway, Acts 12. 12, 12. This is going to be about, again, I'm going to approximately 44 A.D. not hard numbers but approximately so let's look at acts 12 verse 12 and this is just after peter is arrested and herod had just killed james and he saw that the jews liked that so he thought he would be harsh to some other christians and he imprisoned peter and you know the story the angel comes and releases him and he goes out to the city square and a little bit baffled and uh I'll look at verse 11 of chapter 12. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I know for sure that the Lord has sent forth his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting, which was his death. And when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who is also called Mark, where many were gathered there and were praying. So this is Mark, John Mark. John is his Jewish name. Mark would be his... uh, roman or greek name and uh so this is this is mark and so the first thing we know about him first of all his mother mary had a big house the christians were meeting there they were they were they were huddled down there and hunkered down because peter was in prison and they were scared and when peter comes there he says you know rhoda greets him rhoda is a servant girl so this tells you also she had some means she had a servant so the image here you have a big house christians are there implies that Mary was involved in the ministry of Jesus at the time of, before he was crucified. Probably, not definitely, but probably so. For sure, she's involved in the early church ministry. Probably so was Mark, right? That's just the implication you can take here. Just read a couple more verses. Verse 13, when he knocked at the door of the gate, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. When she recognized Peter's voice, okay, so she recognizes his voice, so he'd been there before. Again, um, validating this idea that this was early church meeting in her house. Because of her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter was standing in front of the gate. Okay, so there's the first we know of Mark. Probably was a young man at this point. Maybe really young, which is why maybe we don't read about him in the Gospels. Maybe he was just a little kid at that time. Okay, the next we read about Peter is in that same chapter. You read down and we we read about uh, the death of Herod and he was eaten by worms and died. strange. But anyway, and then in verse 24 of chapter 12, it says, But the word of the Lord continued to grow and to be multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their mission. This was a mission to take some food to the poor Jewish churches. And it says, taking along with them John, who was also called Mark. Okay, so Mark was the son of Mary, probably involved somewhat in the early church. Also, Barnabas and Saul took him to be a helper to them. The next we read about Mark. So that, that's, that's about 44 AD, okay? next we read about Mark is just a few verses later when Paul and Barnabas go on their first missionary journey. And I'll start at chapter 13, verse 2. So they're in Antioch. It says, "...while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then when they would fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they reached Salamis, they began to proclaim the word of God." in the synagogues of the Jews, and they also had John as their helper. We'll come back to these verses a little bit later, but this reinforces this idea of him being a helper, right? In the earlier verse, he was taken along to help them, and here they're taking him along as their helper, or as their servant. And then we'll skip down to that same chapter, verse 13. So they're on their first missionary journey, they're ministering and in verse 13 of that same chapter now Paul and his companions put out to sea from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia but John left them and returned to Jerusalem and that's all you hear about it right here in one verse John left them have no idea why he left them here maybe he was sick maybe he was tired maybe it was too much work for him don't know, but but John didn't finish uh, with Paul and Barnabas in that first missionary journey. Now this is probably about X13, X13, thir- three. This is probably about 48, AD. So four years may have transpired between those two events. Okay. The next we read about Mark. And bear with me here. We'll, we'll, we'll conclude some of this detail in a minute. But the next we hear about Mark is in Acts chapter 15, when um, this is just after the Council of Jerusalem, and Barnabas and Paul are going to launch their second missionary journey. And I think I will start reading at verse 36. Well, back up to verse 35, but Paul and Barnabas stayed in Antioch teaching and preaching with many others also the word of the Lord. So they're back to the home base in Antioch for a while. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brethren in every city in which we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Barnabas wanted to take John, called Mark, along with them also. But Paul kept insisting, these are strong words here, kept insisting that they should not take him along who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. So that adds a lot of color to what happened with Mark. He he deserted them. Paul's view, at least, was that he deserted. He couldn't hack it, and he left. And it was such a disagreement. Read the next verse. There occurred such a sharp disagreement but they separated from one another, and Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. So I've commented on this verse before. It, to me, is one of the status verses in Acts, because up until this point, Barnabas and Paul, Barnabas and Paul, Barnabas and Paul, Barnabas, the son of encouragement, that's what his name means. I mean, the apostles and the disciples named him Barnabas. He was actually Joe, Joseph of Cyprus, jo- that's where you know and he he was the first one to sell his land and take all the proceeds and lay it at the apostles feet so this is barnabas the son of encouragement and he and paul had this great relationship And here uh they have a sharp disagreement they part their ways and really that's the end of barnabas in the new testament you don't hear about him again so to me a real poignant important uh scene here and it seems to have come about with with mark being the the, the center of attention here and they really parted ways because of this disagreement. So that, go ahead. Yeah, thank you. This is probably between the year 50 and 53. The Council of Jerusalem is pretty much unanimous that that is right at the year 50. So Acts 15, what verse is this? 30, yeah, Thirty. Six to forty-one. We'll say about fifty to fifty-three. A couple years probably after this. So already you can see here there, there's ten years, about eight or nine or ten years between when you first see Barnabas or uh, excuse me, Mark in his mother's home, and here at the second missionary journey when he when he leaves him. Okay, the next we hear about Mark is when Paul writes, you don't have to flip there, but there's two mentions of him. One's in Colossians chapter 4 and one's in Philemon verse 23. And I'll I'll just read them for you. This is when Paul's in his first imprisonment in Rome. So this is going to put us about 60 to 63 A.D. Probably more like 62, but around, around that time when Paul's imprisoned in Rome. in Rome prison so again another 10 years later so 10 years after he and Barnabas had this sharp disagreement part their ways he writes from his prison in Rome he says Colossians 4:10. Aristarchus my fellow prisoner sends you his greetings and also Barnabas's cousin Mark about whom you received instructions if he comes to you welcome him And also, Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are from the circumcision, and they have proved to be an encouragement to me. So, Mark is restored, right? Ten years later, something happened between when when they parted ways here and when Paul's writing from prison, saying Mark is an encouragement. He's one of the only people around here that's a believer. Uh, Seems really grateful to have him there. And then he writes similarly in Philemon, It says, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow workers. So those four were with Paul there in Rome. Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke. We know Demas leaves later because we studied that in Timothy. So Mark's in Rome with Paul during his first imprisonment. Okay. That's all we know from the New Testament about Mark. The uh, secular writings tell us that um, and we'll get into this next week quite a bit when we talk about the, um, when Mark was probably written. Uh, in fact, if you don't mind, let me just read one of these quotes from Papias or Papias. I don't know. Does anyone know how to pronounce this early church father's name? Papias, yeah. So, Papius was uh, around about the year 100, between like 75 and 140 or so, and he was an early church. Actually, he he was taught by John the Apostle. He knew he knew John, and was a contemporary of his. And um, here's a quote from one of his writings by Eusebius, who was a historian about a hundred years or more later. This is, but the, he's quoting. Papias, and this is what Papias writes. He said, and the elder, referring to John the elder, used to say this. So Papias says, John used to say this. Mark, having having become Peter's interpreter, wrote accurately as many things as he remembered, not indeed in order of the things spoken and done by the Lord, for he neither heard the Lord. So Papias is saying, Mark wrote down what Peter was saying. Um, he didn't really do it in order because he never saw Jesus. He didn't hear Jesus speak. This is what Papias is saying. Papias is not scripture. Okay, I don't want to imply that, but this is a really early historical account. But afterwards, as I said, he followed Peter, who used to give his teachings according to the needs of his hearers, but not as though he were making a connected account of the Lord's oracles. So the sense here is Mark followed Peter Peter was preaching his sermons, and Mark started recording and writing down these things that he learned from Peter. He says, So then, Mark made no mistake in thus recording some of the things as he remembered them, for he made it his one concern not to omit anything of the things he heard, nor to falsify anything in them. We'll read more of this type of uh, accounting next week, but that's just an account validating that, that Mark wrote the gospel and gives us some insight too that he wrote the gospel based on what he heard from Peter, so it 's possible you know somewhere in here Paul or uh, Mark and Peter hooked up and ministered together, whether Peter was traveling throughout we don 't know you don 't hear about Peter at all in Acts after chapter fifteen either so peter 's life 's a little bit of a mystery for sure from the Bible' point of view, but even historically what he actually did. Uh, during his years prior to when he was martyred, but assume based on Papias's account, he spent some time with um, with Mark. The next we hear about Mark in the Bible, I'm sorry, I didn't read these. I said I was done. I'm not done. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, sorry. I got these last two. They're very important, actually. Uh, one is familiar to you. Second Timothy four. He says, "Bring Mark." Remember at the very last end of his letter. He says, "Bring Mark." And what does he say? He's very useful to me for service. So again, the servant is coming out. Almost all the time you see Mark mention he, he's a helper, he's assisting, he's a servant. And that would have been about, well, it depends on how you, you know, 64 to 67 AD when Paul's in prison the second time, second imprisonment. So some of these overlap. It's hard to say, but several years after the, after this account here, obviously, uh, and then, if you look at First Peter, if you just flip there real quick, the very last verse of First Peter, chapter 5. Um, Peter says, uh, chapter 5, verse 13, She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, and so does my son Mark. So, Peter is in Rome. That's what Babylon means, most likely. don't think Peter ever made it actually to Babylon. There's no account of that. So he's probably using this as a term to describe corrupt Rome as Babylon, sort of a godless place. He was in Babylon, the church here in Rome, chosen together with you, send greetings, and so does Mark. Mark was there with Peter. Okay, so having said all that, uh, what I'd like to do for the last few minutes Is um, go through four lessons that we can learn from the life of Mark, which we've just learned about. And uh, I think it's a pretty remarkable character, right? I mean, when you think about what he went through and where he started from and where he's, how he ended up, I think there's four lessons for us. I just want to go through them. One is rejoice if we are from humble beginnings. It seems like Mark wasn't anyone important prior to his being involved in the ministry he was a son of mary maybe had some means but we don't learn about him being you know uh, a pharisee or a sadducee or trained in a certain way or having any special skill or anything special about him he's really in the shadows right we don't know anything special so it seems to me like he, he is a relatively small character in the accounting of the gospel messages I think he's from, of no particular um, skill. So for us, I think a lesson is rejoice if we're from humble beginnings because God takes small things and the foolish things and breathes his life into them and does his will, right? So we ought to rejoice in that also. He accomplishes his will through the simple things, and he will accomplish his work through you and through me, right? doesn't matter if we're not very smart or not very clever, or whatever. If we're infirmed and ill and weak, it doesn't matter. He can accomplish his work through us. And I just want to read for us First Corinthians chapter 1. It's a very familiar verse. It says, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. I think you can put Mark in here. He wasn't noble. He wasn't mighty. He wasn't necessarily wise. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world To shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world, and the despised, God has chosen the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, the righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, just as it is written, let him who boasts boast in the Lord. Not much more you can say about that, right? So rejoice if we're from humble beginnings, God can use us because it's his power, not ours. Okay, the second lesson is, and we'll review some of these verses, be a servant. I mean, clearly he was such a servant. I and mean, when you go through this, these words, and I didn't even actually realize this until late last night. I was reviewing my notes, and I got this morning, and I want to go with, you, go through some of these verses again with you just to impress on you how much, almost every time you see Mark's name, a verse or two before or after is, is some version of the word servant. Kind of the analogy is with Judas. You know, every time you read Judas's name, betrayer. Every single time in the Bible. I mean, it's very clear. That is his nature. He was a betrayer, a liar from the beginning. So it seems like similarly, or the opposite, Mark is, has his character of a servant. So if you look at, you don't have to go there. I'll just refresh your memory. Acts 13.5, where he's called uh, a helper. In fact, excuse me, I do want to go there because I want to get these words just exactly right, Acts 13.5. Yeah, if you have the ESV, I think it says assistant. He says, yes, uh, they began to proclaim the word of God in the synagogues and they also had John as their helper. That word helper translated, I think, assistant and ESV is the original Greek word hup- and it's often translated helper or assistant or minister. It's really referring to anyone that is subordinate underneath someone. So it's really a humble position underneath somebody else. Another person is directing them. And you see it a lot in the New Testament. Uh, For example, John 18, 36, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants, my subordinates would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. And then Paul calls himself several times a minister and a servant of Christ. It's that same word. I'm a minister, I'm a servant, I'm subordinate to Christ. Interestingly, a little side note, a little side note, and we'll pick up on this next week, but I think this is really interesting thought. Um, in Luke's introduction to the gospel... Uh, chapter 2 of Luke I'm sorry chapter 1 verse 2 when, he te- when he's telling us he, he's writing these things down compiling an account he says just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word okay that's the same word a servant of the word it just makes you wonder if and this is will be amplified next week If you take that version of the word servant, servant of the word, you know, maybe Mark was taken along as a servant of the word, maybe. Maybe even early on in that first or second journey, they recognized that he was recording some of these things, and maybe that's part of why Paul got so upset, maybe. This is Tim Ryan conjecture and some other things I've pulled together, but it is interesting that same servant word is used by Luke to describe a servant uh, of the word, nevertheless, I think mainly it's it's emphasizing Mark's servant heart. Okay, when you see Mark mentioned in Second Timothy, Paul says he's useful to me to service. That's another word. It's not the huperetes hu- word; it's the diacona. So he's useful to me as a deacon. You know, the, the verb for deacon, the version is diacona. So he's useful to me for service or for ministry, and we know. First uh, Timothy three talks about the qualifications of a deacon, so the deacon. This is sort of the image you have of Timothy as a servant like like a deacon. Acts twelve when Mark is mentioned verse twenty five it said Paul and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem and they'd fulfilled their mission that's another word could be translated service, diacona so when they they had finished their diaconal servant ministry to the poor taking along with them Mark. So they took Mark along to this diaconal ministry. Again, another connection uh, with Mark. So I guess I'm building the point here and proving that Mark was really a servant and he was recognized as a servant early on uh, in the church. So lesson here for us is we are to be servants to others, just like Mark was. So first lesson, rejoice if we're from humble beginnings. Second lesson, be a servant. The third lesson from Mark's life that I came up with is recognize God's provision of other people to us. So when you go through the accounting here of Mark's life, you see God used several people to influence him, right? First, probably his mother seemed to be a servant, had people meeting in her house a lot, feeding them, taking care of them. They're all hunkered down when the guards were looking for them. So she had a servant heart, so probably use her and her husband, maybe Mark's father, who's not mentioned, don't know why, but his family was probably used to make him who he was. After that, you see Barnabas. After Paul says, no way, he's not going with us, Barnabas, it says, took him away to Cyprus. And you can only imagine what he did, but I'm sure the son of encouragement encouraged him and said, you know, Timothy, or I mean Mark, hang in there. Maybe he mentored him for a few years. Maybe Barnabas saw the shortcomings he had and helped him out. don't know. But the point being, definitely Barnabas was used to influence Timothy. He was his cousin. He took, him, he took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. So Barnabas was used. Paul was used sort of as a, a discipline, right? Paul is the one that was sharp and said, No, nope, he, he doesn't measure up. I'm not, not going to take him. Well, I think God used that in his life probably. As a, as a disciplinarian to help him out and to sometimes we need those people in our lives to say no you didn 't measure up or speak words of truth to us that are a little sharper than what you might get from your cousin Barnabas, so that was used in timothy 's life, and then clearly, Peter was used in his life. Peter had such a strong personality, right this strong presence, he was a leader. And he calls Mark his son. He said, my, my son Mark greets you, my son. So that's a real affectionate term. So clearly Peter was used to influence Mark. So essentially what you see here, just in the Bible account, not only looking at the other historical accounts, you clearly see God using people directly in Mark's life to shape him and help him and surrounding him. So we ought to recognize God's provision of others in our lives too. Uh, God wants to build up his church. He wants to build up the body. That's how he does it. That's why we have the church. We are built up by others and we are used to build up others. Uh, One of the verses I thought of was Hebrews 10, 24. In the context of him using us to help others, it says, let us consider. That's interesting. Let us consider. So he's not saying... Anyway, so we're supposed to think about it. Let us think about Let's consider how we can stimulate one another. It's not something you just spontaneously do. We've got to put more thought into it. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds for not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So that's the third application for us is surround ourselves with believers and be used also to help them. And then a fourth point I want to make was uh, don't give up. Uh, he had an early failure, right? And look what happened. 13, 14 years later, he is, well, think of this, okay? Little Mark, who was rejected at first, seems to always be in the shadows. Um, ultimately, at the end of Paul's life, he says, get Mark. At the end of Peter's life, Peter's writing from Rome, this is shortly before he's martyred, he said, Mark is here with me. So here's little Mark with the two biggest pillars of the early church, and Mark's right there with him. Um, furthermore, he was <laughs> used to write the eternal words of God that were recorded for us, right? So I think of anyone in the Bible, he's, he's up there with Joseph and, and you know, all the other humble people who started with humble beginnings and was elevated. I think he is like should be in the hall of fame because of what he did. Not only was he with those guys through their lives, at the end of their lives, but he was used to write God's word that we have before us. So Philippians, for I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. He perfected it in Mark, for sure. He began it and he perfected it. And then a couple of verses later in Philippians 1, 12, now I want you to... oh. This is an example of Paul in a bad situation in prison. Now, I want you to know, brethren, my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. So, in the same way, God used Mark's circumstances for the greater progress of the gospel, ultimately using him to write his gospel for us to read. So, I guess in summary, God perfected his work in Mark. He was a man of no known reputation he failed in his first ministry, but he was ultimately encouraged, he was ultimately built up, ultimately, a, obviously a great blessing to these two pillars, Paul and Peter, and a blessing to us because we have his words written forever and ever, eternally, for us to give us to give us encouragement and to feed our spirit and also to bring life to those people who don't have it yet. So I, th- I think he his personality is really neat but mostly because of the way God used him um, in his life and we'll learn a lot more about him actually when we read his gospel as we go through it over the next few weeks and before we close um, any questions? any questions about that? yep I'm speculating on where those people slept (laughs) (laughs) on what they slept on? But
1: like uh, Peter, when his, he healed his mother in law, wasn't that in Capernaum? Mm-hmm. Okay. So when he's in
0: Jerusalem, so where does he stay? Does he
1: stay at the house of Mary? I mean, is that why, Peter, um, why Mark and Peter became close? Because Peter, I mean, because
0: Peter spent the night there a lot? Or where do these people go? I, mean, I think, close. well, you know, <laughs> the healing of Peter's mother in law. When you read that in the first chapter of Mark. By the way, Mark probably is not tight on the, the chronology. Probably not tight. If you read it, it seems like one-year ministry of Jesus. You read John, you know it's at least three years ministry, maybe approaching four years. So where was I going? Oh, your question. Okay, so, um, uh, so where they slept? I don't know, but, I, but I, clearly I think Mary's house, Mark's mother's house, was, was one of their um, outposts. And that was probably the place. And some of the commentators I've read and historians say that may actually be the upper room. Maybe may have been her house that they used for the upper room. I don't know if that's true or not. Tim LaHaye's book presented like that. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. So I think it's possible. But, um. I mean, if you think about it, there probably weren't that many people who had a house that big among the early Christians with a servant and they could accommodate a large group and anyway it's possible oh along those lines so i, I don't know that i'm sure they had different outposts throughout and they walked from place to place and they had places that they knew where they could stay
1: yep any
0: other questions
1: Mm-hmm. could have been the time whenever Mark and Peter then got
0: together for that 10 years mm-hmm. I think so I think that I think probably that this 10 years here is when Mark probably went back to Jerusalem to his mother's house right? back to mommy kind of thing maybe and that's where Peter was and maybe staying at the house and that right may have been a good time for those two to interact
1: but Barnabas led them, right? I mean, took him. Mm-hmm.
0: Right. And yeah. we
1: don't really know right. what occurred during that period of time. Don't so know. maybe he didn't go to the bench, in fact, or that he wasn't qualified, but he wasn't where Paul needed right. a co-laborer to be. Yes. And so then he grew up or learned some things Right. in submission or, or in serving yep. <coughs> with Peter and Barnabas.
0: That's exactly how I see it, yeah we, yes, we don't know what happened, but God knew what was going to happen, and he needed maturing, maybe he needed more experience, he needed whatever he needed maybe the church in Rome or in Jerusalem needed him there to be a servant to we don't know, but
1: it worked out in the end hmm
0: And we'll get into this next week. I, th- I think, I personally think clearly it was Peter who taught Mark. And it was Peter's teaching that Mark recorded in the gospel. I also think that Luke's was from mostly Paul. You know, Luke got most of the information from Paul, Mark. In fact, some of the early church fathers said, well, maybe we should call it the gospel according to Peter. But a couple of those. But for the most part, everyone says, no, it, it's, it's Mark's. Mark wrote down. And compiled it.
1: I was thinking that um, sometimes when you have a pair of people that are really good together, that they can stick together too long. They're not as it's not as so much work done if you, especially if they're very mature. If you get them to split mm-hmm. pick up somebody else to disciple. you yeah. Start seeing the multiplication process. So I'm thinking about the only thing that would have caused Paul and Barnabas. To Mhm. Um, and that may be why God allowed that. Yes. Uh, just, you know, Paul did have a little bit of a attitude sometimes on the that he's right.
0: Yeah, he has strong personality. Yes.
1: Yeah. But I think that's why I saw the positive thing of it was that God used it to actually grow things because now you had two great leaders just like the others going to mm-hmm. two different places and spreading.
0: It. I agree, yeah. I think division of labor any other questions there's a couple things I didn't mention one is um, there's some thought that Mark introduced himself into his gospel sort of like a cameo do you guys know where that is have you heard of this well look at Mark 14 a lot of people think this the commentators I have read and the early church fathers actually think that Mark inserted himself into his gospel and this is at the end of Jesus's life after he's betrayed and he's on his way to be arrested, or he has been arrested um, yeah, just as he's getting arrested. And look at verse you know forty nine we'll pick it up of chapter fourteen of mark mark 1449 every Jesus is responding to the guards who've come after him after Jesus, Judas has kissed him. He says, every day I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me, but this has taken place to fulfill the scriptures. And they all left him and fled. So all the apostles left and Jesus is there. A young man was following him wearing nothing but a linen sheet over his naked body and they seized him, but he pulled free of the linen sheet and escaped naked. So that is a strange insertion of two verses that d- seem out of, yeah, a little bit out of context. Um, so a lot of people have said, well, that, you know, if you think of the humility of it, there's this is naked guy running away from the guards. It's a really humble, almost belittling vision. So they think maybe Mark actually was near. This is another evidence that maybe he was nearby. He was on the fringes of Jesus' message, and he knew about him, and his mother was sort of involved. And he, Anyway... And so maybe he was awoken by the commotion and just kind of grabbed the sheet and ran out to see what was going on and was snatched. And so that, that's a thought. It, no way can it be validated that this was Mark, but a lot of people think that. And then before we leave, just one other verse from Mark's gospel. We'll pick up on this next week. This is the theme, really, of the gospel. It's Mark 10, verses 43 and 45. It's really the theme of Mark. I'm sure it's a familiar verse to all of us. And this is after John and James are sort of arguing who's going to be the greatest. Um, I'll pick up at verse 42, actually. He said, calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, you know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not this way among you whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all for even the son of man by the way that's the phrase used a lot in this gospel son of man that's how Mark identifies him for even the son of man did not come to be served but to serve to give his life a ransom for many that's sort of the theme of the book Mark 10, 43 and 45 Any questions? I think it helps us. It helped me a lot to really sort of dig into who Mark was and how God used him and see where he came from and where he ended up. And uh, I hope it will bless us as we go through the study. Okay, thank you. We'll see you next week.